Friends, we live in the midst of a moral revolution. For many of us, you have seen this moral revolution go on for the last 50 to 60 years. The morality of our culture is being transformed before our eyes at lightning speed. Things that were once considered immoral are now widely accepted within our culture. Perversions, which were once rejected by society at large, are now accepted as commonplace. As Christians, we continue to find ourselves in a world that is transforming around us. Morality and immorality are things relegated relegated to the the past. For many of us, we are told regularly that we are on the wrong side of history. That as Christians who stand on the truth has revealed in Scripture that we are wrong, that we are bigots, that we are hateful, that we are mean. Our moral virtues, which were once celebrated as a culture, are continually to grow odds with Christianity. Frankly, this world wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ or any moral virtue whatsoever. Therefore, as Christians, we will face growing persecution and hostility in a world set on rebellion against God. But friends, although our experience has been moral revolution in the last 60 to 80 years, this world has never really been friends with the Lord. Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 2 that because of our depraved nature, we have been against God. We have set ourselves against and God has given us over to our own evil desires. But as we face these growing persecutions, perhaps in our own homes, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, where we face constant confrontation, signs in people's yards and signs in people's windows that want to make clear that your views about certain things like science are unwelcomed. Friend, do you recognize that when you see things in folks' yards like science is real, what they're telling you is, Christian, you are a fool to believe anything other than Darwinian evolution. You're an idiot to believe Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 are true. And Adam was a real historical person. Do you you understand your neighbor is throwing bombs at you with some of those statements? But Christians foolishly think this world loves them. How then are we to live in a wicked world, a world devoid of any moral clarity, a world that is is apparently confused about what's right and what's wrong? Well, as Christians, we need wisdom. We we don't want to go around just throwing bombs back at people. Putting up our own signs in our yards, bigger and wider and more bold. That's not the response. The response is Jesus isn't to meet evil with more evil, but to meet evil with a wise, with salt, and with light. 
You ever consider the way Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? He didn't tell them, listen, take up swords. We're going to take over the world. No, be a salt, be light in the midst of darkness. So as Christians, we need wisdom, lest we are tempted to grow weary and or even envious of the world around us. As we see the prosperity of the wicked, as we see the the prosperity of the powerful and the evil, we could be tempted to to grow discouraged, weary, or even envious of their ways. Well, to help fight that, David wrote in the Holy Spirit-inspired Psalm 37. So I invite you to turn there if you've not already. Give me a few minutes to do that. This psalm is identified as a psalm of David. No other historical context is given within the psalm or within the heading. David indicates within the psalm, in Psalm uh, 37, verse 25, that David is older in life. He is advanced in age. Perhaps this was written towards the end of his life and given to his son, his son Solomon. Much of the wisdom That's given in Psalm 37, you'll see throughout the Proverbs, which was written by Solomon, David's son. Much wisdom given. A son who knew and heeded his father's advice for a season. Psalm 37. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the new day. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day coming. The wicked draws the sword and bends their bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own hearts. And their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times in the days of famine. They shall have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives for the blessed by the for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. 
The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast cast headlong, for the Lord upholds him. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. And his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. What is David's point? And what is the point of our time? That as Christians, we are to commit ourselves to righteousness, which leads to eternal life, because the way of wickedness ends in destruction. Friends, we often talk about and describe, and Psalm 1, of course, captures this theme that we see here in 37 most clearly, is that there are two ways to live. There is either your way, which is the sort of standard state of all humanity. We go our own way. That's what it means to be a sinner, to be depraved. Or there's God's way. We either live our way or God's way. And, and, and David here presents to us these two opposing ways. Roads, if you will. The sort of Hebrew word there is a, is of the way is, an, is a picture of a road. There's a path. You're, you're going on a path. And the question is, what path are you on? What way are you going? Are you going the way of wickedness or the way of righteousness? And like any good path, it leads to somewhere. Every road leads to somewhere, doesn't it? It has a a destination. You, You get in your car to drive to a destination and you use a road to get there. And David here paints two Opposing destinations. One destination ends in an eternal life, an eternal land, lush and green and beautiful. And the other is destruction and judgment and death. David is very frank about these two pictures. that The one committed to righteousness leads to eternal life. And the one who's committed to wickedness ends in destruction. The problem, though, for the Christian, unlike the wicked, is that the road of the Christian is a road, as Jesus describes, as narrow. 
A road that's, that's surrounded by wickedness. A road that is, has signs up all around it. Billboards as you travel down it that says, get off this road at any chance you have. Whereas the road of wickedness is surrounded by a wicked world. And so this morning, I want to warn us and warn you as a Christian from becoming envious of evil. If you rightly understand where evildoers end, if you rightly understand that those who rebel against God will be judged eternally, why, in your right mind, would you want to be like them? Why, in your right mind, would you want to be like someone who has a death sentence hanging over And therefore, we are then to commit ourselves to living righteously in a wicked world. David presents to us uh, four steps or four ways to live righteously in an unrighteous world. And so there's four points. This psalm is an acrostic, which means that David began each section in Sandal with another Hebrew letter. Although he left some Hebrew letters out as he did it, just... Kind of imperfect. He never was really good at the acrostics. Um, but nonetheless, there's, there's not a lot of organization. They seem to be somewhat sporadic. And so trying to organize this around sort of four thoughts, four themes that we see in the text. First, avoid envy of evildoers. If you want to live righteously in an unrighteous world, you must avoid envy of evildoers. So I want you to reflect this morning as you are confronted with Psalm 37, how you are envious of evildoers even today. Perhaps it's your boss. Perhaps it's your neighbor. Perhaps it's your own family members. You see them flourishing, though they're living in rebellion against God. Do not grow envious of them. Secondly, we see that we are to trust the Lord's judgment. We are to trust David presents here this sort of exhortation to trust that the Lord will judge in his perfect timing. And that alone, that knowledge, that theology is sufficient that we do not need to worry. Thirdly, we see in this psalm that we are to commit ourselves to doing good in a wicked world. That there is no excuse. You can't turn up in heaven and say, you know, I lived in a wicked world, so therefore I was like the world. No, Jesus says that, that I'm calling you out of the world to be different than the world. So we are to do good in the world. Be generous. Speak words of wisdom. And fourth and finally, we see in these last verses of the psalm that we are to rest in the Lord's protection. That we are to rest in the Lord's protection, there is a restfulness, a peacefulness in the midst of a wicked world, amidst the, ter- the storms of life and, and the storms of wickedness around us, in, in the midst of moral revolution and, and, and constant change, there is a, a peace, a restfulness in the Lord's protection of his saints. So let's look very briefly at each of these points. Number one, in verses 1 through 11... We see this continual exhortation to avoid envy of evildoers. 
Avoid envy of evildoers. In verses 1 and 2, David sets forward the theme for the entire psalm. The entire psalm is is hanging from verses 1 and 2. Look with me there again. David writes, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. David says, don't worry yourself with evildoers. Don't don't concern yourself. Don't, Don't become overly burdened by them, nor be envious of them, because, verse 2 makes clear, they will one day be gone. David exhorts the singers to avoid this sort of consumption, this this obsession with evildoers and wrongdoers. If you are the minority in the majority, it it is tempting to look to the majority culture, look to the majority sinners and want to be like them. David says rather that we are to avoid that way by living righteously. Throughout verses 1 through 11 and really throughout the whole psalm, David provides and again and again the basis for avoiding envy of evildoers. And that basis is their end. The the end game for them, the result, the, the judgment of God. He says that they will soon pass away. They will soon be more, but the righteous will live forever. Why would you want to go that way? That way ends in death. Go this way. It ends in life. So in verse 10, look look with me down at the end here in verse 10, end of this section. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. David pictures you going to his house and you're, you're looking through the windows in the house and, and, and there's, it's vacant. There's nobody there. There's a for sale sign out front. How quickly... They're gone. Or there in verse 2 again, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The green herb, a tender herb, a tender plant, a plant that can't take a lot of heat. Like mowing your grass in the, in the heat of the summer, in the afternoon heat, what happens? You mow your grass in the afternoon when it's 100 degrees outside, your grass is dead by dinner time. That's the way it works, right? That, that, that tender plant, it's been, it's been covered by the, the, the longer foliage. You cut it down and it gets burned. And, and, it, and David describes here the life of the wicked. They look vibrant. They look lush. They look beautiful. It looks wonderful. But on the inside, they're dead. Jesus similarly described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. In other words, they looked great on the outside. They were white, beautiful, pristine. It's something to look at, something to marvel at. In a world where there was no such thing as bleach, where you could bleach something white, to to see something white and pure was a marvel to the eyes. And Jesus says, but if you were to pry open the thing, it stinks of rotting corpses. That's what you are. And as Christians, we can be tempted to to see the beauty of the wicked world around us. 
Because you see, they take what God created as good and distort it and change it and transform it. What God made for his glory, they use for their glory. And so that's why your eye is attracted to it. When you see the success of the wicked, when you see the success of the powerful, you might grow frustrated. Brothers and sisters, you you turn on the news, you read the newspaper, you flip through your Facebook or whatever you, however you get your news. And I guarantee you, every day there's a story of corruption. A story of a powerful person abusing, perhaps abusing children, perhaps abusing money at work, embezzling and stealing from their workplace. It could even happen in your own workplace where you've seen your co-workers lie and cheat in order to make their way up the corporate ladder. But friends, the question that David presents for us this morning is the question we must use every single day of our life. What right person envies the dead? I want you to think about that. That's what David is saying. Friend, you are not very wise if you are envious of dead people. For that is the way of wickedness. But the way of righteousness, David says, is a way of trust and a way of goodness. So positively here in this first section, notice what David says. In response to wickedness, we aren't just to sort of sit idly by but rather entrust ourselves to the Lord. Look there at verses 3 and 4. He says that we are to trust the Lord and do good. These are twin pairs that will continue throughout. Trust and do good. The Christian life is is a combination of not only doing good, but depending on the Lord in the midst of doing good. David here offers us a true assessment of not only the wicked, but also of the righteous. He gives us the long view. So often we are plagued in our lives by the short view. We don't think about the long game. We don't think about what things will be like in a year or two years or three years. We think about what things are going to be like in one or two days. And so because we focus on the short view, what David here is doing is pulling the camera back and allowing us to see the long view. What results from a life of righteousness? What results from a life of wickedness? He lays forth several exhortations in this section. Several imperatives. Trust, delight, commit, trust him, refrain, forsake wrath friends these are the way of righteousness the christian life the life of a servant of god is one who's marked by continual trust and delight in god jesus himself in the sermon on the mount uses psalm 37 verse 11 look look there with me does it sound familiar the meek shall inherit the land See, Jesus takes that verse and he says, you know, I'm going to interpret this psalm for you, uh, disciples. He says, I'm going to help you understand here. What I'm coming to do is not give you a little piece of land in Canaan. I'm about to give you the whole world. I'm about to set on fire this world and create a new world, a new heaven and new earth. So that Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 5, that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness and humility is the way of righteousness, Jesus says, and so David as well. 
Jesus takes this psalm and applies it to the kingdom of God. Which means that if this morning you are a part of the kingdom of Jesus, meekness must characterize you. Citizens are often characterized by the country they're from, right? You know, there's certain characteristics about citizens of other countries. We, we pick them up very quickly. When we're traveling perhaps to a different country, we notice them, right? We're like, oh, those folks, they do weird things. And, and so folks come to America and they're like, y'all do some weird things over here, right? We see that citizens pick up the, a part of what it means to be that citizen. Friends, that's true of us as Christians. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And one of the characteristics, one of the attributes, one of the traits of being a kingdom of heaven, well, is meekness, humility. In fact, Jesus says only the meek inherit the land. Friend, are you a citizen marked by meekness as those who delight themselves in the Lord? Now, some might find verse 4 somewhat troubling, so I want to just spend a moment there. David writes, delight yourself in the Lord, and he, that is God, the Lord, will give you the desires of your heart. So, oh, wow, this is a good verse. I, I suppose that if I really want something, and I just believe in Jesus, and I just you know, trust in him, then he's going to give me whatever I want, like some Santa Claus in the sky. So what David says, he'll give me the desires of my heart. Friends, it's only true. Verse 4 is true. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Or then he will give you. In other words, if, if you are delighting yourself in the Lord, then what your heart desires is what the Lord desires. Therefore, you won't desire wicked things. This is David's point. He's like, hey, look, brother, sister. He says, here's how you keep yourself off the road of wickedness. He says, if you are consumed with Jesus, you will not be consumed with others. If you are consumed with Jesus, you will not be envious of wickedness. And you will not be discouraged. As, as John Bunyan once said, the desires of God and the desires of the righteous agree in one. They are of one mind in their desires. In other words, if, if you are a believer this morning, you're, you're fighting against your sin nature. You, your sin nature is being transformed and changed so that it delights in the things the Lord delights in. Friend, do you delight in the Lord? Are you consumed with thought and deed in the Lord? Are you committed to the Lord? Friend, if you are not delighting daily in the Lord and His goodness you will be tempted to envy and worry and anxiety in a wicked world. But when you realize that all you have in Christ, if you realize your rich inheritance in Christ, that you are an heir with Christ, a co-heir. If, if you understand conceptually in your mind who you are positionally in Christ, you will not want anything to do with this world. Because this world pales into comparison with the world to come. For again, who is envious of the dead? Friend, how are you tempted to fret over the prosperous people in this world? 
How are you tempted to envy those who are wicked in the eyes of God? Brother, sister, avoid envy by delighting yourself in the Lord alone. As Christians, we must follow these, these twin truths of doing good and trusting the Lord. This is how we avoid envy. We should avoid it because the, their day is coming. We see that next theme that we are to trust the Lord's judgment uh, throughout this psalm, but particularly in verses 12 through 20. So if you just look there with your eyes, we'll, we'll move through a few of these verses quickly. Of course, there's a lot here. I just commend you this afternoon just to meditate on these wisdom verses. Verse 13 makes clear that judgment day is coming. That the Lord is not surprised nor caught off guard by the wicked, but the Lord sits like a hunter watching his prey, patiently waiting for the day of judgment where he will judge those who have inflicted suffering upon his righteous. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked. The Lord is just watching. He's just watching the scheming and the, the plotting and the power grabs. He's watching all of this and he just laughs. He's just like, this is hilarious. They think they're doing something great. Or, 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 as, the, or as the prophet said, it's a drop in the bucket. Nothing. To an almighty, all-powerful God, all of our scheming, all of our planning, all of our wickedness, is nothing but a big joke in the eyes of God. Verse 17, he sets forth a contrast between the two of the wicked and the righteous. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. This is the point that David is hitting home over and over and over again. He is reminding them that the Lord is the one who will judge them for their wickedness. You don't need to worry about being judged. That he will do it. And it's so tempting for us as Christians. And, and this is why I think rightly so. Often we get lobbed back at us. That we're just being judgmental. Because we often get in the wrong position. Of being judge of this world. When Jesus is saying. I'm the judge of this world. Just trust me I got this. So often when we experience injustice, we want immediate restitution. We want immediate justice. And that's right. It's good. God created us to live justly. There is a good desire for that. But as Christians, we learn to patiently wait. This is why Paul says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? We are not to be vengeful people. But continually trusting the Lord. To trust the Lord's judgment means that we don't seek our own judgment. We don't seek our own revenge. For this is the activity of the wicked. But look here in verses 14 and 15. Notice the scheming and plotting by the wicked. The activity of the wicked ultimately leads to their own demise. They, they have their bows, they have their swords, they're trying to inflict pain, not just generally speaking here, but he has in mind inflicting it upon the poor and the needy. Friends, if you would just pay attention to the politics around us, just here in Baltimore, 
This is exactly what you see going on. You just pay attention a little bit when you watch the news tonight and watch how the poor and the needy are the ones who are being controlled by the powerful and the wicked. There's a reason why in this fallen world that happens because, you see, that's the way of wickedness. The powerful always trying to control those who are weaker and needy. But the Lord promises the Lord has a heart for the poor, doesn't he? He has a heart for the needy. He has a heart for the, for the fatherless. And he promises that one day what will happen is that their swords will turn on themselves. And it will be their own demise. It's a reminder of their future. A future that the righteous want to avoid. And then in verses 16 and 17, David gives the believer hope. You see, the believer trusts in the Lord because he is sovereign over space and time. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Friends, the wicked days are marked. They are in the hands of a God and in his perfect timing, he will reveal his justice and deliver the righteous. Friend, this morning, if, if you are concerned, if you are taken in to worry over the unrighteousness of this world, Christian, believe that God is coming. Jesus is coming to set all things right. Ultimately, as verse 20 makes clear that the wicked will perish. It's sort of kind of sad but it's just a resounding theme in this psalm it's a reminder we we need a wake-up call that the wicked are going to die david makes clear that we should avoid this way brother sister if you are tempted by the way of wicked this this morning i hope you are hearing with ears of faith that that if you go that way, if you go down the adulterous way, if you go down the way of, of greed, you go down the way of envy, it ends in destruction. Don't go that way. And Solomon helpfully tells his son, uh, don't go down by the prostitute's house. Don't even go down there. Don't even look out the window at their house. And this is true of so many other sins. Don't go that way. Brothers and sisters, trust that the Lord's judgment is coming. David will say in verse 28 that the Lord loves justice. Amen, amen. This is what gives us assurance and trust that the God will set all things right. This doesn't mean that, that they're going to be right today or right tomorrow or right this year. There are a lot of injustices in this world. But as Christians, we want to trust that one day, one day, all things will be made right. As Revelation 21.5 reminds us, John heard it from the throne. He said, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. In other words, I am going to make everything right that's wrong in this world. Friend, this future is secure if you are secure in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins this morning. Trust in this judge. Trust in his justice. One day, Jesus is coming again, and he promises that I will reveal everything. Everything will be exposed. Every good deed and every bad, I will make it right. 
And because we trust the Lord and we trust that he is a just judge, then we are not given into envy of evildoers or tempted to go their way. But we are committed to doing good. You see, if you trust the Lord, it frees you up to do good. But if you're consumed by envy, you're consumed by worry and anxiety, you're focused and giving all of your energy to that, well, friend, then you have no energy left to expel on goodness, on righteousness, on living as salt and life. If all you're doing is, is hammering out the next blog against this wicked world or preaching the next sermon against your wicked grandkids or whatever you're doing, rather than living godliness and Christ-likeness before them, well, this is what we see then in verses 21 through 31. That as Christians, we are to commit ourselves to doing good. Commit yourself to doing good. Make it a commitment, David says. Make it a resolve. Verses 21 through 31. He describes those who have trusted in the Lord's judgment as those who are not driven by envy, but ones who are driven by and are freed to be content in their present circumstances. Let's notice a number of verses here, beginning in verse 21. He, he kind of contrasts these two ways again. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. This is one example of, of goodness that David is, is, exempt, is sort of encouraging here, is one of generosity. Another that he encourages comes later in verse 30. Is those who utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Because they are not driven by concern of the wicked or given themselves over to wickedness means that they are content. And this contentment allows them to pursue goodness. David uses the example of generosity as a visible reminder of living in delight of the Lord. You see, when you're generous, it's a, it's, it's a heart thing. And your heart is content with who God is and not what you have in your wallet or what you have in your home. You see, to delight in the Lord results in generosity. Because what you're most satisfied with isn't your junk, but Jesus. What makes you happy isn't accumulating more and more stuff in this world. I mean, if you really think logically about what we do in this world, even as Christians, it is very illogical to amass wealth in a world that's going to be burned. It's really foolish for us to build kingdoms and empires in a world that is ultimately going to be destroyed. But see, we're taught from a very early age uh, that this world is our home and we're comfortable here and we want to build a bigger whatever for ourselves. But when Jesus interrupts our life and comes to us and we believe on him, we are saying we, we, are, we are rejecting this world and accepting a new world that is unlike this. Righteousness, or righteous, the righteous rather are marked by generosity. The wicked are the ones who don't pay back who borrow and have amass debt to build whatever they're building, but is the righteous who are generous. Look there in verse 26. He is ever lending generously. 
and his children become a blessing. David here pictures one's generosity as of continual ever lending. In other words, he, he's not just you know generous all you know when people are watching. He's always generous. He's just a super generous person. As Christians, friends, we should be known as generous people. Paul deals with this, of course, at length in First and Second Corinthians about being generous. This morning, do you consider yourself righteous? You consider yourself this morning a righteous person. Well, then are you generous? David offers then the motivation of, of the righteousness to do good in verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Now, to be clear, I've already done this and I, and I kind of made this clear uh, in Genesis, I hope. When, that, when you read your Old Testament, you want to understand that Jesus has sort of expanded the land. It's no longer this geographic location in the Middle East. Jesus has come and he says, listen, I'm taking over this whole world. I mean, the land of Canaan, yeah, I'm conquered that. But I'm going to conquer the whole world. And so when you enter into his kingdom, you're entering into the, the whole world. The land we learned in Genesis was the gift that God had given his covenant people. And all that they had was an inheritance from the Lord. And so... One thing we want to remind ourselves that when we live righteously is because of the inheritance we have. The inheritance of a new heaven and new earth. Friends, the righteous are generous because they have everything they need. And so if you look there in verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. David's point isn't about moral failure here, but financial failure. In other words, when they fall financially, and saints, we know that there are seasons of life where we may fall financially, where we may struggle financially. But, but notice what, what the point David makes here is that it doesn't prevent you from being generous and it doesn't prevent you from being secure. The Lord upholds his hand. A number of years ago, that's number 15 years ago, my wife and I faced tremendous financial uncertainty. Many of you will remember when the economy entered a recession, uh, homes stopped being built. When you're a plumber, that's your like bread and butter. And people stop remodeling their houses and they stop, you know, spending money because there was really no money to be spent. And, and we found ourselves jobless and almost homeless. And I remember one night just overwhelmed by the debt that we owed and, and the lack to repay that debt. Some of it because of foolish, you know, young people problems and debt, but also some of it just because we had no job. And I remember going outside in a starry night and looking up and just praying and being reminded of God's greatness and how small this problem really was. As you see the horizon, the beauty and the, the, the sort of the bigness of the universe, you, you just begin to realize how small you are. And David here is, is similarly doing, he's like, listen, the Lord, who is he? He is upholding you. He's got you. And I just remember that night just being like the burden lifted off. I'm like, man, I'm not going to worry about this in a trillion years. In a trillion years, as much as crushed as I am right now in this season of life, as, as burdened as I am with the trouble going on in my life, 
or in your life right now, will you fret about it in a, in a trillion years? Brother, sister, you're not going to wake up in a trillion years and take off your jammies and put your clothes on to get to work and worry about COVID-19. Or worry about what life is going to look like after COVID-19. Or, or what's going to happen in November. You are not going to worry about that. So don't worry about it today. Ultimately, those who are righteous are not only generous, but they are those whose mouth speak righteousness. They are a voice of reason in the midst of wickedness. David writes here in verses 30 and 31 that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. In the midst of injustice, we as Christians must be the voice of reason. We must be the ones who are speaking out against injustice with words of justice, not perpetuating greater injustice. We must use God's word as the basis of our wisdom. This is what David makes clear in verse 31, that the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. In other words, David doesn't picture one just having sage, wise words to share with a wicked world. But rather one who's so saturated with God's word that his word is their words. Brothers and sisters, are you known to be wise in this world? You will only be wise in this world in so much as you know God's word. He is not writing things in the sky. He's not revealing things to you in dreams. He is not revealing things to you through other means than the Bible you have in front of you. If you want to know God's will for your life, open your Bible this afternoon and read it. If you want to know uh, what you should do next, Open God's word and he will reveal it to you. God speaks through his word and you will only be wise as much you read. If you find yourself lacking in wisdom, in discernment and understanding, go to God's word and consume it. Regularly studying God's word, even committing it to memory. He says there in verse 31 that, it, that, that the law of his God is in his heart. He knows it, right? It's like you learned in VBS. I will hide his word in my heart that I shall not sin against God. Right? You're going to hide it by, by memorizing it, by meditating on it. In other words, get this. If you memorize God's word, you take it with you wherever you go. Now, I can't remember anything. Well, you remember where you live, don't you? You remember your phone number. You remember your address. You remember your name. So you can remember things. Okay. So now that we've gotten past that, spend some time reading God's word, thinking about it, meditating on it. Study God's word. Commit it. Friends, this is the promises of God that, that if we will commit his word, we will be saturated with wisdom. But friends, it takes time. We, as we've learned through this quarantine, have a lot more time than we realized. A lot of wasted time in our lives. 
A lot of time we spend frivolously using it in obsession with the wicked of this world rather than committing them to knowing God better. Well, finally here in this final point, very quickly, in verses 32 through 40, we are to rest in the Lord's protection. David paints these two compelling pictures here, but of the righteous way, he combines this aspect of patience and peace. This sort of patiently waiting peacefully. A peaceful waiting on the Lord. In other words, it's not an anxious waiting. It's not a nervous biting of the nails waiting. When is he coming? It is a peaceful. He's coming in his perfect timing. And I'm just going to keep waiting until he comes. And I'm good. I'm restful. Why? Because of the Lord's protection. He will not let his righteous stumble. Verses 32 through 40 in this final section reassures the righteous that though the wicked plot to kill, ultimately the Lord will protect them. Look there in verse 32. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Perhaps this, he paints in his mind one who is going to unjustly accuse the righteous and, and sentence him to, to some sort of death or imprisonment. But the Lord is going to protect him. The Lord will not abandon him to his power. The Lord is more powerful than the wicked. The right response in such, a, in such suffering in verse 34 is to wait on the Lord and to keep his way. Brother, sister, if you don't remember anything from this morning, remember this. How do you live in a wicked world? How do you live righteously? You do verse 34. You wait and you keep his way. You wait. Just chill out. Wait and keep doing good. Live righteously. In verses 35 and 36, David offers us an illustration from his own life of a wicked man who plotted against him. I love the imagery that he uses here. I've seen a wicked man once, he says. He was ruthless, in fact. He spread himself like a green laurel tree. Beautiful, strong, powerful. But he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, I went looking for him, but I couldn't find him. He couldn't be found. Perhaps he's re referencing here Saul or some other adversary. The point remains. In the end, the Lord won. The man died. The question remains. Why are we envious of dead people? David says as he looked for this man, this, this powerful man, this mighty man, this strength of a man ruthless and wicked in his ways. Ultimately, he died and he was gone. In verse 37, David encourages the singer to learn from others. David's now advanced in years. And he's sort of instructing his own heart, but instructing his young son. And mark the way, he says in verse 37, of the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. In other words, David says, take time and learn from those who've gone before you. The Puritan pastor, William Plummer, pastorally, I think, reminds us 
in this way. He says this, let old people make it their business to tell what they have seen of God's wonders in providence and grace. He writes, they cannot be better employed than in thus commending the loving kindness of the Lord to the rising generation. You know, I have to get asked by senior saints. They'll come to me. Pastor, I just can't do what I used to do. You know, I used to I used to come up to the church and I would do all these things and I would lead this and I would do that. But now I just can't do it anymore. See, they often think in categories of physical things. What physically can I do? What can I wash? What can I clean? What what can I do with my hands? My response to them is the greatest thing you can do is tell others in this church how God has sustained you over your life. Brother, sister, that's you this morning. If you're one of these senior saints or as Plummer calls them, old people. Uh, if that's you. And I know old is relative. But if that's you this morning, you have a job. You have an employment. You are employed as a member of this congregation to open your mouths and remind us of God's providence and grace over your lifetime. Take the opportunity weekly to share with someone younger than you how you got through. This is what Titus 2 is all about. Older women training up younger women. Older men training up younger men. If you remember, Titus says in Titus 2, he says, Older women, you need to teach the younger women in the church how to love their husbands. What? I don't need help loving my husband. Oh, yes, you do. Just wait. You're going to need help. Let me tell you how, how sometimes he acts like a fool. And let me tell you, you're going to need patience, right? And bringing up children? Oh, that's easy. No, 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 it's not. See, congregations are served when they're young and old. When senior saints aren't relegated to the past, but celebrated as those necessary to help the rising generation. A healthy church sees value in both young and old and never, ever despises those who are older than them. Brother, sister, heed the advice. Spend time raising up the next generation. This is the way of wisdom. This is how you can help our young people Against the wicked world they live in. Now it may not be the world you lived in. But let me say, let me say this. As I said at the beginning. Romans 2 makes clear. This world has always been fallen. So the temptations you face. Yeah they may not have been the same. But they were temptation nonetheless. The hope of the righteous is this twofold. The future judgment of the wicked. And the eternal life given. Through Jesus Christ. Notice here how David concludes. By this conditional statement. Verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Conditional statement, because they take refuge in him. He doesn't say because they were more powerful or because they had more strength or more endurance. No, because they rested in him and him alone. Friends, you do not need more of this world. You need more of Jesus. You need to rest in him. By resting in the Lord, you are free to pursue pursue righteousness for God's glory. The life of the righteous is a life of rest. 
Not free and unfettered by trial, temptation, or suffering, but one of continual rest in the Lord's protection. The Lord has you in his hands. We are in his hands. Nothing, Paul writes, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Love of God in Christ. And so commit yourself to righteousness. Friend, this morning, resolve in your heart to resolve this week to to live righteously and thus inherit eternal life. Avoid the way of wickedness which ends in death and destruction. Avoid envy. Commit yourself to living righteously. Trust the Lord's judgment. Commit yourself to doing good for God's glory. And rest in his protection of the righteous. Martin Luther helpfully summarized this psalm. The sum of this psalm is this. Suffer. Suffer. That is, he writes, learn patience. Listen to what he writes. Every evil must be overcome by bearing it with patience. Cast your cares upon the Lord, he says. Do not murmur. Do not grow angry with no ill will to the wicked. And this is the greatest line. Leave the management and government of all to God. He is a right judge. Friend, leave the management of the wicked to God. Commit yourself to doing good. Delight in him and do so until Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Father, help us to that end. I pray it is not an easy journey. It is difficult. Our way is marked by many trial, many pitfalls, many off ramps, many temptations that lead us astray. Help us this week, I pray, to remain focused on Jesus and committed to the way of righteousness. Father, commit us to meekness and the hope of eternal life and our inheritance of the new heaven and new earth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.